So welcome everyone. This is the uh, first episode of our new CNS Controversies and Neurosurgery podcast. And I'm uh, one of the co-hosts, I'm Seth Oliveira. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I'll let my co-host here introduce herself. Roshna Lee, very happy to be here from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we are joined today, we're happy to be joined today by uh, Dr. Joseph Nemot from uh, University of Louisville. He's the chair of neurosurgery there, and he's also the uh, president of the ASSFN, and he's been kind enough to join us for our inaugural podcast here. The controversial topic we're going to discuss today is um, subdural grid and strip electrodes versus stereo EEG. And so just to get started, you know, just a kind of a, a question off the top, if, if Dr. Nima, if you wouldn't mind just uh, starting by just kind of giving us a, a brief description of what those two techniques are and uh, and then we'll sure. go from there. Oh, I, I, well, first, thank you very much for inviting me to be here. It's a pleasure to, to see both of you and to be discussing this with you and to be, I didn't realize it was the inaugural podcast that is auspicious and I will try to <laughs> live up to that expectation. Um, yeah, so, so you know, I, I guess I'll be discussing a topic that has been a little bit controversial over the last several years, and that is the use of either uh, grid or uh, stereo EEG electrodes for phase two monitoring and epilepsy. Um, I can describe them briefly. So uh, uh, grid electrodes are, you know, typically sheets or strips of electrodes that are inserted through craniotomies or burr holes uh, to uh, further define the epileptogenic zone. Um, that has been sort of the predominant technique in the U.S. Um, and in other parts of the world in Asia uh, for the past several decades. Uh, stereo EEG is a technique that uh, was very popular in Europe over the past several decades and has recently seen spread uh, to the U.S. and other areas. That, that is the stereotactic implantation of uh, multiple depth electrodes that are, are placed in uh, deeper targets or, or superficial targets uh, and uh, perform some of the same goals. And there are, there are subtle differences in the uh, benefits and complications of both that we'll discuss. Right. And yeah, I, I think you kind of led into, you know, the next thing, you know, kind of to start us off, I think it's, you know, we'll certainly delve into what the controversy or, you know, the, you know, at least perceived controversy might be. But uh, I guess before we get to that, we should talk a little bit about just the, the strengths and limitations of, um, of each technique. And, and that kind of might, that, that sort of leads into why you might choose one versus the other. And certainly different people have different opinions about what, what their preferred technique is. Yeah, so um, so I, you know, I, let me let me talk about both. I, I guess the, uh, the stereo EEG I think is very useful uh, in the identification and monitoring from deep targets uh, such as the insula hippocampus, cingulate in some ways is deep. Um, uh, it's also very useful for identifying circuits as you're able to place it in multiple locations of what is a potential circuit and identify. Uh, the potential spread of seizures from one area to the other. Uh, it has the advantage of being able to used, be used bilaterally uh, easily, which is, which is not true perhaps of, uh, of the techniques requiring a craniotomy. And um, I, I think patient uh, comfort uh, is certainly an advantage that has been recognized over the past decade, at least in the US that I've recognized um, that over the past decade or so uh, as it's been in more common usage. Um, it may also have a slightly lower uh, risk profile as far as uh, complications that may occur. Uh, and that's been evidenced in some meta-analyses. Uh, 
Um, uh, grids, on the other hand, I think do have specific advantages uh, in being uh, sort of in the way that the electrodes are organized uh, to comprehensively cover an area of uh, extratemporal cortex or frontal cortex, uh, particularly where you may be able to identify an adjacent uh, uh, eloquent zone. Uh, and so your ability to differentiate in those situations uh, an, an area of seizure focus from the uh, region that is eloquent may, may be important and it may be at least more easily used in those situations. Um, and so, so that's where it may have uh, still be seeing uh, some predominance. Uh, on, the, on the downside, it, it is a larger operation that is often more uncomfortable for patients. Um, and the, the risk profile is slightly higher with about uh, you know 3.5 percent reported complications. So uh, th those are sort of the, the I guess the the effects that we're balancing in making these decisions. And you know, and I guess what you, yeah, I think you covered really well. One other thing is you know that if you're going to put in grid and strip electrodes, you're also committing to a second surgery to to take them out minimally and potentially resection. True. I think that's right. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely, I, I'm hoping I'm going to be sufficiently controversial because I, I do see these things in rather a more nuanced way than in, uh, yeah. than in sort of an absolute way of, yes, we must always use stereo EEG or grids or what have you. But well, what uh, I, thought, I thought I might ask uh, both yourself and then uh, Russian, feel free to, to chime in. So, so what is your sort of balance of what you're actually doing in your practice? Yeah, it has shifted. I mean, I will admit that it has shifted over the last decade. So uh, I really was trained using largely a grid technique, some strips, but largely grids. Uh, I, I find that very effective and still in some cases find it very meaningful. Um, on the other hand, I've really been attracted to um, the, the, the ease with which patients tolerate stereo EEG. I think uh, some of the novel techniques, be it robotics or 3D printed frames, have allowed that surgery to be performed uh, more efficiently. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result, I, I see probably much more utilization there than I do see in grids, although I, you know, I use them. Um, I use them both. In fact, in the last week, I've done one of each. So it, it's, um, <laughs> it's not unusual for me to do one or the other. I can say at least in my, you know, I was trained, you know, primarily with, you know, subdural grids and strips mm -hmm. and, and some depth electrodes and um, you know, came out of my my training doing primarily that, and uh, almost immediately switched over to doing mostly stereo EEG. Once you do the first few cases, now it's sort of I have to really convince my neurologist. That, you know, there's a case where we need to do a craniotomy, and it, yeah. it's really almost shifted 180 from where I where I started pretty rapidly. And um, how about you, Rashna? Same residency was primarily grids and strips introduced some um, SEG towards the end of residency, did mostly uh, um, SEG during fellowship. And then in practice, it's been 90% or more um, SEG uh, with 10% or less uh, grits and strips. I think we're significantly more uh, thoughtful of uh, which patients we're gonna perform uh, grits and strips type of surgery on. Um, and, you know, while we're on the topic, just curious to know, have, have either of you been doing a lot of these combination implantations with grid strips and depths in, in the same setting or doing the phase three? Yeah, I, 
I, you know, I sort of started there. I mean, I, I sort of migrated, I think, from a uh, grid technique through a period where I was doing grids and complementing it with a number of stereo EEG electrodes, um, often sort of using the inserting stereo EEG electrodes through burr holes that I then used as sort of the perimeter of a craniotomy, uh, which is a technique that I liked. And then as I got more comfortable with the stereo EEG, I shifted to those in many cases. I still think you have to be, um, you know, I, I think that we do phase two monitoring typically to answer some hypothesis that we've developed from the early testing. And so I, I always try to tailor my phase two monitoring to whatever that, that question is. If my suspicion is that, you know, this is potentially a hippocampal focus, which may be, uh, you know, maybe unilateral or bilateral, or perhaps there's a mimic in the insula or orbitofrontal cortex, then stereo EEG works very nicely. If my predominant hypothesis is that, gee, this is left frontal, but I don't know where it is exactly, and I'm not sure if it's adjacent to language cortex, then still I see uh, grids having some application there, although there, there have been stereo EEG techniques for, for addressing that concern also. So I, 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 I still try to approach it from a question of you know, what, what is my principal hypothesis. Yeah, I would actually say, yeah, it was the same thing. I, I did some hybrid cases really to kind of convince myself I liked stereo EEG and quickly transitioned over. Actually, some of my most, I would say, stressful cases was trying to do some sort of funny hybrid that really wasn't using either technique as well as you should, you know, trying to slide some strips in with, with stereo EEG. And I, I quickly abandoned that because I felt like those those cases, you were either messing up your stereo taxes by doing burr holes or you, were, or you were worried about kind of, you know, pulling things away from your, your, your depth electrodes. If, you did this if you did the stereo EG first and um yeah i i but i totally agree i you know i think it's, it all, it's very much hypothesis driven but but yeah and occasionally we will kind of you get that you, you guess wrong on your hypothesis and realize you need broad you know kind of cortical coverage and you might come back and do do a, a craniotomy at a later date or something like that mm. yeah yeah um yeah so, so i guess you know what do you think dr nima you're you're, you're you definitely, you know, have the ear of a lot of people in the field. What, what's the controversy, or what, what, you know, what, why, why, I guess, why would someone be reluctant to to try these, you know, to go the other direction if they're they're kind of, you know, really uh, using only one technique? Or, I, I guess let me let me ask that question different way. Do you think there are a lot of people who are really using one technique still? Uh, that's a good question. I I I think. I think when this question started, there was a sort of a dogma that well, we must use grids because it gives more comprehensive coverage because, uh, you know, we were maybe just more comfortable sort of interpreting it. But certainly for, you know, neurologists a decade ago who were just used to sort of seeing, okay, I have 64 contacts laid out on the frontal lobe. I know where each is, a, you know, relative to the others. That was a relatively easy thing to describe and, and monitor. Um, and so I think there may have been some resistance early on in, in accepting the stereo EEG techniques. Uh, surgery, I think, was also a more challenging uh, thing. You know, it, it, the, the early centers in Europe that were doing it were doing it, uh, you know, largely through a lateral approach, mm -hmm. um, you know, requiring angiograms and that sort of thing. It was a little bit more nuanced and it perhaps took longer than it takes now. Mm -hmm. with modern imaging and, and robotic techniques or you know here we use a starfix frame that has all you know 15 trajectories rolled in right. one you know it the, the surgery is no longer as complicated or daunting or, or or perhaps risky as it was early on 
And so I think as a result, um, you know, we, we've become more familiar with it and, and it's been safer. And I, and I think the controversy, I don't think there's anyone, well, that's probably not true, but there, there are a few today who I think would say stereo EEG should not be utilized in some way. If anything, I think there, if, if there's a controversy, it may be uh, that this has swung the other way, that people will say yeah. well, you should only use stereo EEG. And, and there's some evidence for that, right? It, it is more comfortable for patients. I think that is, uh, I, I have seen that to be empirically true. Uh, the risks may be slightly less, although the risks for both, I think, are relatively small. Um, you, you did bring up one good point, which is that some neurologists have, a, you know, depending on how complicated you make your, your stereo EEG, you know, uh, kind of evaluation, that can be very difficult to, yeah. uh, to, for them to really kind of piece that together, or just a lot of information in three dimensions. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think, um, I, I think now we have better ways of, you know, I, 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 one, one thing that I think is true is that there really hasn't been a unified way of doing this. So center to center, we, we don't all have the same uh, either notation for where we put the electrodes, um, format for how we demonstrate that to uh, our neurologists. Um, something that I've benefited from actually is, you know, occasionally I share patients that have gone to other centers and I've communicated with those neurologists and neurosurgeons and said, hey, can you, can you, you know, they, they may have had phase two monitoring five years ago. And, and now for whatever reason they're they're needing another surgery and so we asked them to send their data and I've, I've actually been really sort of pleased to see the way that they've organized their right, data. Right. Oh, it's different than what we do you know sometimes i use some of that you know I, I i i think it would be nice if you know as a group of epilepsy surgeons we got together and said hey you know let's let's share some tools that we all use to communicate this more easily and and so that right. people wherever they've trained are used to you know, see, sort sort of the way we we sort of all share the the same Xerox diagrams of the brain that we put our grids on, right? That I think that, that came from Montreal originally. It would be nice That's to have right. maybe something a little more modern for, mm -hmm. for stereo EEG. That's funny. And then, you know, actually, another thing you I was thinking about, and for either of you, do you, either of you do any mapping off of SEG contacts? I, I I've been interested in that, but I haven't done that. I think very few places are doing that. I, I've done some. I, I, in particular cases where I have, um, I, I guess I would say that if I anticipate that mapping is going to be an important part of what I need to do, I will sometimes at least consider grids first. Uh, however, I have had some cases where sort of my predominant hypothesis was that it was a temporal lobe epilepsy and I was sort of surprised to find that there was significant activity in some in some frontal electrodes that I placed and I used those electrodes <clears throat> to sort of map the posterior border of my proposed resection to see if it was safe and in those cases I have sometimes wanted to either convert and and put grids in or perhaps just to add additional stereo EEG electrodes to further define mm -hmm. the epileptogenic zone and its and its boundary uh, relative to some eloquent area. Mm -hmm. um, that I think is sometimes um, a, a, a useful question that needs to be answered and, and there are different ways to do it. Yeah, I think I've seen a few talks with, you know, describing, you know, protocols to do that, but I, I don't think, you know, it's obviously a little more challenging than with the grid. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, yeah. I, <clears throat> We, we, use it yeah. we use it frequently. Our, oh, really? uh, 
uh, ever since we kind of swung the other way to using more SEG than severe Grissom strips, our epileptologists were very uh, pro mapping, um, especially when resections uh, outnumbered the number of neuromodulation procedures that were being performed. And they've gotten very proficient at it. And more often than not, we it's not so much to map out eloquent cortices. Uh, we pretty much know, you know, most of our patients have had fMRIs, et cetera, prior to implantation. And just based on anatomical locations, we, we know what's going to be eloquently resectable or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but some, like Dr. Nemoth mentioned, it sometimes helps to map out one of those questionable areas. And B, it also uh, helps us counsel the patients a little bit more definitively as to why we're not doing resection and swinging more towards neuromodulation. We found it to be a very, very helpful tool. And what are you mapping? Are you mapping language or, or you're not, are, are you doing things like motor mapping? Motor, language, uh -huh. and then um, sometimes when, uh, it's, it, things are a little bit questionable. Our epileptologist will, will get um, a little bit risky and uh, stimulate a uh, slightly higher amplitudes to see if we can stimulate um, their typical seizures as yeah. well. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the limitations to mapping off SEG is that, you know, not that you can't, you know, go directly through eloquent areas, but obviously a lot of times you're not trying to do that. So, so that can also limit your mapping a little bit, obviously. Sure. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think is interesting with the increasing utilization of thalamic DBS or RNS uh, for, you know, for seizure control, you know, in patients who perhaps are after your, uh, you know, after your testing don't seem to be candidates for resection, I think there's some real utility to recording, you know, from those nuclei, whether it's anterior nucleus or central medium nucleus to see whether the, the seizure is reflected in that area. And then perhaps if, you know, either if you uh, find you cannot resect the region or if you ultimately your resection does not you know make the patient seizure free knowing that this was quickly transmitted to the central medium nucleus for example mm -hmm. may, may prove to be important later and i think that's going to be an emerging area of uh, exploration you know treatment uh, i think that that's something that's I, i've found very exciting recently we started yeah that, that's really interesting and uh, there, there was a paper i forget who was the author was that jamie who did that where they um they looked they had they had electrodes in the uh, hippocampus and they i think they stimulated the thalamus and could see suppression of hippocampal activity which was pretty sure. exciting yeah um, so it's pretty neat if you already have electrodes there, you can do things that you otherwise don't have much, you know, much opportunity yeah. to do. So, I think that's right. That's good as exciting. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really neat. So, um, and yeah, so, so, you know, I think we kind of, uh, the, the other thing we've kind of been uh, talking about a little bit that's kind of comes into play, obviously, is what you think the final, you know, kind of step, you know, the definitive surgery might be, might obviously influence things as well. And, 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 you know, in the kind of modern era, there's things like laser ablation and that, you know, I, I do quite a lot of laser ablation for epilepsy. And, and, you know, these days I oftentimes, you know, I'll, I'll try to guess and put in, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of laser catheter, you know, compatible bolts, you know, for, for my SEG electrodes. I don't know if you guys do any of that, but if, if you guess right and everything goes well and you can just replace an electrode with a laser catheter, you know, kind of in, in 10 minutes in the OR, it's, it's, it's a pretty slick, uh, 
uh, way to do things. But obviously, <laughs> you know, sometimes you guess wrong. <laughs> you, you typically, you know, th those bolts are bigger. You wouldn't want to put in 20 of those. But, uh, you know, often, oftentimes I'll put one in down to, you know, like, like if I was going to do a, a ablation of the hippocampus, I'd kind of put in a, a bolt for that trajectory. And and, yeah. and that's quite slick. You know, it's usually very, very kind of straightforward. You know, basically the patient, you know, sort of doesn't have any additional incisions or, you know, really kind of any other surgery other than replacing, you know, one, one sort of uh, probe with another. So. I, you know, I think, I think that's not a bad trick. Now, you know, the other technique is to actually uh, lesion through the electrode. Yes. That's yeah. been, mm -hmm. you know, I think well described and, yeah. and uh, you know, the, the, there's the advantage there that you can actually do an ablation and then still monitor the patient to see whether that changes your, your seizure activity. And yeah, that's really neat. I, um, I, th I think that is an exciting possibility. We've explored that just a little bit. We haven't gotten very fluid with that, but that is something that I sort of would yeah. like. To I think one of the biggest limitations for that, there's no good connectors, right? You have to kind of rig it up. Alligator clips. <laughs> and it, 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 this, I think, is one of the, um, you know, one of the challenges with all of this, I think all of us who do epilepsy surgery, we, we have sort of jury rigged, even if, you know, we're using well-designed equipment, but we're sort of, there are all these points that don't quite connect. So you're using these electrodes with these bolts yes. and connecting it to this cosmic generator <laughs> with whatever connector, you know, there, there, there isn't a sort of out of the box solution that works, you know, for, for all things together. And, and that, that would be something nice to see um, that, that standardization might make this all simpler. Um, I, I, you know, I'll go one step sooner. You know, like I'm trying to be controversial here, right? So I'm, we've been too much in agreement. I, I, right, yeah. I, I guess the thing that I might say, if I think about, you know, where is this all going is I, I would like to imagine, you know, in the not too distant future that we abandon resection and ablation altogether, that we're actually not even thinking about it. Because if you think about it sort of objectively, we, we, we sort of gave up on, you know, lesions for psychiatric disease for the most part, right. you know, right. so, some time ago. Uh, and, you know, can we can we do the same for epilepsy? Could we actually conceive of a time where we are, you know, using our, wh whether it's, you know, grids or stereo EEG, but we are sort of gathering more meaningful information from that period of phase two monitoring, actually testing different stimulation patterns, looking at, at biosignatures of, you know of seizure activity and then and then using using that to create a more complex responsive stimulation pattern that that uh prevents future seizures i think that would be kind of the next generation epilepsy treatment that i'd like to see yeah that's really that's interesting yeah um and, and you know obviously the you know the, the device on the market it, it's sort of you know uh, relevant to the, the, the topic at hand because it has both you know subdural <laughs> Uh, contacts as well as depth electrodes, mm -hmm. the, the the responsive neurostimulator, and I guess you know with, with that regard, obviously it depends a little bit on what you're trying to target. But uh, do you kind of find yourself? You do very much RNS, and when you do, do you, do you tend to use the depths or the the strips or both? I, I do. I mean, I, I suppose it depends on my, you know, whatever method I've used to determine the, mm -hmm. the you know, the, the likely seizure focus. If, if um, if I've identified the, the those targets with stereo EEG, I typically follow up with a you know a, a, a penetrating electrode. If mm -hmm. uh, if I've placed grids and found you know seizure activity in regions that are eloquent, then in those cases I'll use the paddle. Um, yeah, you know, other than that, I, I don't typically perform a craniotomy or a burr hole to place a paddle if I've 
if I've identified those regions with stereo EEG, that, that, that doesn't make as much sense to me. Right, right. And I guess, uh, have you done very many bilateral RNS cases? You know, that, that's sort of yeah. getting, starting to get towards your, you know, your, your perceived sure, yeah. your, your future where you're having multiple, you know, devices for multiple sort of nodes. And I mean, the most yeah. common obviously is for bitemporal epilepsy, although you can do that with a single device, obviously. But, uh, you know, there's definitely case reports of, you know, using two devices for bilateral foci. Sure. I've not done, uh, have I done two? I don't believe I've done a case with two actual RNS devices, two generators. I have sometimes placed three or four electrodes, mm -hmm. thinking I'll mix and match later, sort of taking my leading candidates and thinking if these don't work, I'll change them out. And I've occasionally done that. Um, I've certainly done bitemporal epilepsy. And, and at times I've favored that even, you know, if if my hypotheses were strongly that this is either unilateral or bilateral hippocampal seizures, I've liked the idea of sort of performing a preemptive RNS and thinking to myself, well, well, hopefully this will control the seizures completely. And if they don't, perhaps it will tell me in the future that all of the seizures are coming from the left or right and I can follow right. this laser ablation. I think that's that, that may be controversial and I think something worth considering um well you know a lot of the limitations for you know to, to get to that goal that you described is obviously the hardware and you know if, if you know i i believe there's sort of devices on the horizon that will have more hmm. more more contacts and are more more kind of capacity for additional leads and that that would certainly i think change thinking a lot you know when you're talking about one or two leads you you have to be you know it really does limit some of the candidates but if you had yeah. four or six leads that would really change things obviously yeah i, th I think that's that's very true yeah, yeah. In that same vein, uh, when um, thinking of polemic stimulation, are you more prone to use closed loop stimulation or open loop? No, oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I mean, so there, there was a recent paper in the pediatric literature that examined, uh, you know, essentially all the current case series and compared them. And, and what it showed was that both DBS and RNS, the, the efficacy was relatively similar. There really wasn't a significant difference in, in small case series, not in a significant number to be, you know, to be a true comparison. But um, I, I think we have tended a little bit toward, toward RNS for thalamic stimulation, simply because it's nice to see it's nice to see the feedback. It's been very useful, not just to see how well your stimulation is working, uh, but our neurology team has been sort of very satisfied when they could change medications and actually see the way that that changed, uh, the, you know, the, the, the seizure report over the period of months. Uh, and so I do think there's something very nice about the, the, the ability to have, you know, both closed loop monitoring and perhaps stimulation. I, I, I think that these devices are growing together. If you look at sort of the capacity of the, you know, some of the newer DBS systems and having at least in a limited way, some recording capacity, we, we may be able to utilize that in a similar way. And I suspect that these systems will essentially grow together that in the future, uh, there, there won't be this question of DBS or RNS. It'll simply be, you know, brain stimulation of right. whatever flavor we call it. But it will involve both, you know, deep and responsive elements. Well, that's really interesting. Um, we're, we're getting a little short on time. I sort of hog things here. Arashna, do you have any other questions or other uh, comments you might want to add in? I I would just echo what Dr. Nima said. I think it's it's all a matter of uh, 
us sort of pooling our, our uh, combined uh, cognitive efforts and looking at larger data cohorts um, to see what truly does help these patients or not. I think all of us are in our little pockets doing all kinds of wonderful things. And until we build up and actually get some, uh, some published data out there, some of us aren't completely looped in on, on what's happening. So uh, maybe this can be the, the planted seed of forming some sort of a consortium where we're pooling all of our neuromodulation data and, and looking at larger, uh, uh, larger cohorts and hopefully making some meaningful, um, meaningful changes based on that. Yeah, I, you know, I would uh, just just briefly, uh, you know, state how much it has helped me to, re to reach out and to actually visit other centers. When I was sort of in the middle of my career at Vanderbilt, I spent some time, as we were considering purchasing a robot, going and seeing centers that were doing more stereo EEG and seeing what they did and how they did it and having conversations and sitting in on their mm -hmm. conferences. As I started, you know, more of the thalamic stimulation, I spoke to Roshna and other people at Spectrum who were doing that work and had been very much leading there. Uh, I, I think that exchange of information I have found uh, in my career to be just tremendously beneficial and, and really very pleasant. There's nothing, you know, especially after you've been doing this for a while, it's really kind of fun to go to other places and exchange ideas. Uh, and so I, I certainly hope that that's something we do more of in the future and uh, that that kind of exchange can be something that, that you know, our society ASSFN or, or the CNS can really facilitate. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end it, unless you have anything, any other comments there, Dr. Newmont? No, I just, just to thank you guys again for uh, including me in this and uh, look forward to, uh, to, to discussing this more in the future. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah it was really a pleasure. Thank you again for, for participating. And uh, just to kind of close up again, you know, myself, Dr. Lee and Dr. Mulat. Again, this is our, our first of uh, the CNS Controversies Neurosurgery podcast, and you can kind of stay tuned. There'll be uh, more of them coming on the podcast page on cns.org. Um, thank you both very much and uh, have a good evening. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thanks so much.